I invite you now to take a copy of God's Word and turn to Romans chapter 8. It's found on page 944 in the Bible, Pew Bible, that's in front of you if you'd like to use that. Uh, we're really still just, just getting started on a new series for this uh, late spring and summer months, uh, looking at, uh, in an in-depth way at Romans chapter 8, the theme of which is that God is for us. Today, just two verses, verses 3 and 4, but we'll begin our reading in verse 1. This is the holy, inerrant, and life-giving word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades This is the word of our God. It remains forever. In the um, very popular, the hit TV series, Lost, there's a famous scene with one of the characters. And if anybody just got nervous, there will be no spoilers in this opening illustration. You you know, it's been out for a long time, though. Um, But one of the main characters, John Locke, is wheelchair-bound after suffering a horrendous fall that left him essentially paralyzed from the waist down. And this proved problematic for Mr. Locke because he believed his, his destiny, his great purpose in life, was to travel to Australia and do the grueling, months-long walkabout in, in the outback. Um, but he doesn't let his handicap deter him. He trains for it nevertheless, he books a, a, a ticket through an agency that, that will take him on a group walkabout. But when he arrives on the day of departure to the bus, the agency realizes that he's paralyzed. He had not informed them of that beforehand. Uh, and they tell him, well, they cannot honor his ticket. Uh, it's too dangerous. It's impossible, really. Even people in peak physical condition cannot complete these arduous outdoor excursions, they tell him. And after some arguing, the guide finally says to Locke, very matter-of-factly, you can't do it. And as the bus pulls away, and this is the famous part of the scene, it ends in heartbreak as John Locke Pathetically, it's wheeling after the bus, shouting repeatedly, Don't tell me what I can't do. Don't tell me what I can't do. We've been there before, too, haven't we? We instinctively recoil when people dare tell us that we can't do something. 
Maybe especially when we're younger. How about the frustration when, when we're children? As children, when parents tell us that we can't go along with the others because we're not old enough. Kids, how does that feel? You can't do it. You're not big enough. Or you can't do it. You're not strong enough. You're not able enough. What's the, the gut reaction is, well, I can do it. I can do it on my own even. I don't need your help. Sometimes, though, we need to be told our limits. And when we're told that we can't do something, as in the case with John Locke or the frustrated child, it's for our own good. It's for our protection. And in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, Paul is telling us that there's something we can't do. And that is this. We cannot save ourselves. Now, there are two ways we could respond to that announcement. In defiance, we could say, don't tell me what I can't do. Or, in faith, we could say, okay, I can't save myself. I can't do it, but tell me who can. And the wonderful answer is, of course, that God can save and God will save Paul has already declared as much in verses 1 and 2 that God has pardoned us, that he's justified us, he, we're not condemned, and moreover that we've been liberated from the prison house of sin. When you look at verses 3 and 4, he tells us how God has done that. But first, before we get to how God has done, or before we get to what God can do, we read that there's something we can't do. So we begin the first point this morning, what we can't do. And you're looking at verse 3, and maybe you're thinking, uh, why I'm putting it that way, because Paul does not actually say that we are incapable. He speaks, though, of the incapability of the law, the inability of the law. He talks about the law can't do. And so why am I saying it's something we can't do? Well, if you look again at what he says, I think you'll see why. Uh, the NIV or the King James brings out, I think, the order of, of the Greek, which is really awkward here, better than, than the ESV, which we've read. Uh, because in the, in the original, unlike the ESV, Paul does not begin with this phrase, for God, but he begins with the phrase, for the law. He says, for what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh. Weakened by the flesh is key here. That's key to understanding what Paul's talking about. Paul's not making a dig at the law. He's not indicting the law for not being good enough. He's not indicting the law for not being powerful enough. He's indicting you and me for not being able to use the law the way it's meant to be used. We're not good enough. We're not powerful enough. We're weak in our flesh. And when weak flesh tries to obey a good life-giving law, disappointment, even disaster, yes, even death is inevitable. The law of God, in that it comes from God and it's a reflection of God's holy character, it is a good thing. It, it is a guide to holy living. Paul calls the law in Romans 7, um, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good, 7 verse 12. Paul even says he delights in the law of God, verse 22 of chapter 7. But then you look at verse 23, maybe you just have to look up at the page or turn, turn back a page. Look at verse 23. Uh, verse 22, I delight in the law of God. Yes, it's a good thing, but then verse 23, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. This is the flesh that, that's weakened 
and is unable to obey the law. This is the flesh that weakens what the law is meant to do. The law is meant to lead us in holiness, but when we approach it in our sinfulness, we find that it can't lead us in holiness. Actually, it just draws out further the sin that we have in us in the first place. So yes, Paul does speak about the inability of the law, but really he's, re- he's really speaking of the inability of men, of mankind. Uh, this is how theologian Charles Hodge explains it. Quote, This insufficiency of the law, as the apostle had taught in the preceding chapters, is not due to any imperfection of the law itself. It is holy, just, and good. It requires nothing more than what is right. And if men could comply with its righteous demands the law would pronounce them just. If men could comply with its righteous demands. I mean, I was thinking maybe there's a parallel here between cars and those who drive them. On some occasions, accidents occur because of a malfunction in the car. You know, the brakes give out uh, or, or the engine seizes up or any host of other things that I could just describe as a weird sound when I'm with my mechanic, but some people here know what those things actually would be. Cars sometimes malfunction. But the majority of accidents are actually a result of user error. The car's fine, but it's weakened by the incompetency of the person behind the wheel. And when that person is driving the car, no matter how good it is, no matter how well it functions, it can't save them. And if the accident is serious enough, the car is just a means of further injury or even death. The law of God is like a perfectly functioning car driven by a complete idiot. Driven by a complete idiot, let's say on, on the 5 outside of L.A., one of the most dangerous highways in America. In that situation, the car is not the problem. The driver is. And the car will only be an instrument of their demise. And likewise, for sinners... The law becomes the instrument of their condemnation. Now, that is something the law can do, by the way. The law can condemn. The law is great at that. But what the law cannot do is pardon. It can't forgive. It can't justify. It can't save. And that's because you can't save yourself by the law. You know, if somebody um, took me to the base of El Capitan and and Yosemite, famous... um, Uh, mountain peak there, and gave me all the gear that I needed in order to scale uh, El Capitan, uh, to to climb the Dawn Wall. They gave me the ropes, the resin, uh, the the helmet, the harness, the the carabiners, the cleats, everything else. And even if they mapped out the the exact route I needed to take and to follow to get to the top, I could not do it. I'd die. I mean, it's just as simple as that. That's why I'm not going to do it. It doesn't matter that I have all of um, uh, the the tools necessary to get to the top. I, I have everything I need externally to get to the top, but there's something I don't have internally, and that's the skill. I don't have it. Likewise, the law is the external tool, the map, all the gear that we need to live a righteous life, but we don't have the internal strength to follow it. The law is unable to save because we are unable to obey it. We can't save ourselves. 
For that is, as Paul now goes on to show, what only God could do. First, what we can't do. Second, what only God can do. Now, if you look again down at verse 3, I mentioned it's written kind of in an awkward way in the original language that the King James renders it very literally, pretty literally. This is how it reads in the King James, and you'll see it's, it's awkward. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. That's strange. That doesn't sound quite right. That's not really how, how we speak. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, okay, and now he changes. God sending his own Son... What does that have to do with the first part? Uh, that would get a, a D minus for clarity from Mrs. Fredericks, my English teacher in ninth grade. Uh, that makes no sense, Paul. And the ESV tries to smooth this out, and it says that it's in light of what the law can't do, that God has done something. So we read, for God has done what the law, that's, that's added, that's just to fill it in, to help us understand it better. In, in the light of the inability of the law, God does something in all of his omnipotent ability. He steps in and he does something. But I want to say, though, that there might be something, even just a small something, to the the halting, awkward way that Paul strings together this sentence. It's as though the direness of the situation, of what he's describing, overcomes him. He's writing, For what the law could not do, in that it was weakened by the sinful flesh of man, and then he, he just kind of stops and he puts down the pen, and he's thinking, Wow, that is not good. We're not in a good situation. Something needs to be done about our sinful flesh. God needs to intervene. That can be man's only hope. And then he thinks that God has intervened, and he picks the pen up, and he starts anew, as it were, by saying, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. This is what we needed. We could not save ourselves, but God can. I love the triumphant way the NIV puts it. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. God did. So, what is it exactly that God has done? What is it that only God could do? He saved us. He justified us. He sanctified us. He condemned sin, in the words of verse 3. That's the same word, by the way, we found in verse 1, right? There's no condemnation. Now, for those who are in Christ Jesus, sinners don't get condemned, but sin does get condemned. God's dealing with sin once and for all. Uh, These are the things that the law in the hands of weak, helpless sinners could never do. But God can do, and God does. And notice how Paul describes what God does in Trinitarian terms. Notice that first, there's the work of the sending sovereign. Right? The sending sovereign. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son. God the Father is the initiator of our salvation. You know, keep that in mind when you're tempted to think that, uh, that he's just this mean judge who needs to be placated uh, by, by his son. The son is full of grace, but the father is full of wrath. No, it's the father who sent Jesus into the world. It's the father who initiates this plan. It's the father who gives him a particular mission. Jesus tells us that even in the gospel of John in chapter 12, verse 44 and following, we read this. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me, the father. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Who's that? The father. 
I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. The Father told me, you go to the world not to condemn it, but to save it. The Father initiates. Jesus comes at the will of his Father. Sinners to save. The Father sent Jesus. Look again at the text. Look at verse 3. And just reflect on, on this little phrase with me just for one moment. Sending his own son. Sending his own son. He didn't send the 101st Airborne Division. He didn't send SEAL Team 6. He didn't send a negotiator. He sent what was most precious to him, and yet what was also most needful for us. Do you want to know that God loves you? Do you want to know, how can I know that God loves me? He gave up his love for you. Jesus is the eternally beloved. That's the one God sent for you. He sent his son. He sent his heart. He sent his love. John writes this in 1 John 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Praise God, he didn't send anybody else, but he sent his own son. So there's the sending sovereign. Second, there's the sacrificing son. Jesus came, we're told, in Romans 8, verse 3, in the likeness of sinful flesh. That phrase is more important than you might have at first realized. He did not come in the likeness of flesh. That's not what it says. It doesn't say he sent his son in the likeness of flesh as though he kind of appeared to be a human, but he really wasn't a human. Nor did he come in sinful flesh as though he weren't divine. Rather, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, the likeness of sinful flesh, because his humanity is both real and sinless. And that makes all the difference. Uh, The son knew something uh, of the sinful effects of the flesh, the weakness, the infirmity of the human condition, but he himself is not sinful. Paul is clear to make that point. Otherwise, the next thing he says makes no sense, which is that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Uh, Anywhere else we find that phrase, and for sin, in, in the scriptures, it's almost always translated as a sacrifice for sin. Or uh, a sin offering. So we could read it that, that he sent uh, his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sacrifice for sin. That sacrifice is only efficacious. It only works because he comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. Because he's sinless. Otherwise, the sacrifice wouldn't do anything. Christ came as a sinless human so that he could pay the price for humanity's sins. And this is what he did on the cross. That's why the end of verse 3 says, God condemns sin in the flesh. As the nails go through his flesh on the cross, God is making a statement about sin. He's making a judgment on sin. 
Because of the nails, because of the death on that tree, our pardon is secured. God has accepted the sacrifice. Sin has been paid for. We can be justified. And because God accepted his sacrifice, he's not going to demand your own. So Jesus did what we could never even dare to do. He died for us. And we sang a few minutes ago a wonderful hymn about, uh, from Horatius Bonar, uh, Thy works, not mine, O Christ, about how it's all about Jesus, everything that he does. So there's four verses in our hymnal, but in the original there's like nine or ten verses. And I want to read you one of the others. It goes like this. Thy death, not mine, O Christ, has paid the ransom due. Ten thousand deaths like mine would all have been too few. His death, his sacrifice, has secured our salvation. The sacrificing son has died for us, and this has made our justification and also our sanctification possible. So now we look at verse 4. Verse 4 gives the reason for verse 3. Why did Christ die? Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And here now, the sanctifying Spirit is introduced. The sanctifying Spirit. Again, God does what we could not do. Uh, we could not affect the obedience that the law required. We read the law and we see we need to do something, but we in ourselves can't do it. And so the Spirit comes enabling us from within to actually obey the commands we find in the law. So that's why he says we walk by the Spirit of God. And therefore, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. Or put another way, the gospel transformed our lives. The Son was condemned not simply that we would be forgiven, but that we would be transformed, that we would be made holy. That's what the gospel does. John Bunyan is credited with this little verse wherein he it compares the inability of the law with the ability, the power of the gospel. And it goes like this, this little line, and something easy that you can remember. Run, John, run. The law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. The law tells you what you need to do, but it's not going to help you do it. The gospel gives you the power to follow after God fully. And so there you have it, friends. When it comes down to it, these verses, verse 3 and 4, are very simple. They're saying something so simple, but so important. You can't save yourself, but you don't have to. Because God can. And God will. But we start there. You can't save yourself. What's your response to that? Will you say in defiance, don't tell me what I can't do. Well, if you do that, one of three things will happen in the remaining years of your life. If you, if you dig your heels in and if you say, don't tell me what I can't do, one of three things. Either you will be entirely anxious and unsettled because you'll never be sure if you have, in fact, done enough to save yourself. Or you'll live in despair at the realization that, in fact, you can't save yourself. And you resign yourself to the sorry conclusion that if you can't do it, nobody can. And your cause must be hopeless. Or third, 
you'll lead a very smug, self-assured life thinking that, in fact, you have done a pretty good job doing the thing that the Bible and Pastor Cruz told you you can't do. And then in that case, when you die and wake up in hell, it will be the greatest surprise ever. But there's another option. You acknowledge your inability to save yourself. And you cry out to the God who can do it for you. This is literally what he does. That's what we're being told. And when you go through life knowing that your salvation, that your soul is in his hands, you're not going to be anxious. You're not going to be despairing. And you won't be self-righteous either. You'll have a humble peace knowing that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together have done the very thing that you can't do, that nothing else could do, that nobody else could do. Not even God's law could do it. But the thing that you need more than anything else. Because what you and I could not do, God has done. And it's God in all the perfection and power of his triune glory. The Father initiates salvation. The Son accomplishes salvation. The Spirit applies salvation. And we'll actually live in a different way. Think about that. What does your salvation depend on? Nothing less than the work of all three persons of the Trinity. All three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's as though they have staked their very nature, their very essence on saving you. They've put it all on the line, as it were. Are you going to doubt that? Are you going to be afraid? Oh, friends. Friends, what have you to fear? Your salvation is as strong as God himself. Your assurance is as big as God himself. And your sanctification is as sure as God himself. Amen? Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you initiate salvation. And gracious Son, we thank you that you've come to accomplish it by the sacrifice of yourself on the cross. And Holy Spirit, we praise you that you would condescend to dwell in our hearts when we receive this news by faith to affect in us that which the law could never affect in us, the ability to keep the commands of God. We can't do it at all. We say nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to your cross we cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul we to the fountain fly. Wash us, O oh, our triune God, or we die. We need you. And we ask that you would work in us the humbling faith necessary to admit our inability and give us the joy of knowing that our salvation is secure in you and that what needs to be done has been done. And there is nothing left when we put our faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.